This is Chris Shelton, and I am the critical thinker at large. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. And this week, we are going to do just a little informal breakdown, a little talk, a little chat amongst us girls. Uh, I thought, you know, I, um, I thought I owed you guys this podcast because I have now completed my master's program. I'm waiting for my grade, of course, on my thesis. I've turned in my final report, you could say, um, which uh, was... Uh, pretty long. It was a big uh, paper uh, with original research on the Church of Scientology and L. Ron Hubbard and, and coercive control. And I promised you guys that as I went through this program, I would keep you up to date. I would tell you guys what I was learning. I would pass on things to you. And I believe that over the last year and a half, as I've been getting through this thing, I have done that. But I thought now that it's all kind of over and I've finished the work I would go over what the program entailed. What did I learn? What was all of this about? What have I been spending all this time doing instead of making, you know, the, 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 these videos that I've been promising you guys forever. <laughs> I put all that stuff on hold and I put a bunch of other stuff on hold and I did this program and I just kind of nosed down and, and did it. And, um, now that I got all the way through the thing, you know, you can look back on all this blood, sweat and tears and sacrifice and all the other stuff you did. And you go, oh, it was all so worth it. But of course, at the time, you know, <laughs> you're just like, holy cow, couldn't believe how, you know, anybody out there, of course, who's gone to university or has done postgrad uh, work, you know what I'm talking about, right? It's it's hard. It's hard work. Um, and I didn't necessarily appreciate how hard it would be or what would be hard about it. But, you know, I've um, I think I've shared enough of the tri tri trials and tribulations and travails of my college experience, university experience. And I don't need to go keep harping on all of that. I wanted to share with you guys what I learned and what we covered in the program. And this is not necessarily a, a marketing video for the program, but um, but at the same time, I thought it might um, be interesting to you guys to actually cover all the details of stuff we went into. Now, I can't obviously give you a year and a half of study in an hour, which is, uh, so I'm not even gonna try to do that, but we are gonna cover some of the broad strokes some, and, and some of the details and get into the classwork and what we actually learned about. And I'll share some with you guys as we go, some of the more important takeaways or details that I got from that at the time and in and in retrospect um the 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 class that i did the classwork that i did was a postgraduate master's degree program in the psychology of coercive control offered by the university of salford in the united kingdom and i did this program online um and i the people who ran the program are uh, rod and linda dubrow marshall they are longtime academics and uh, psychologists, and they are well, well, um, uh, I guess you could say, educated uh, on the topic of coercive control, destructive cults, undue influence, thought reform, brainwashing, and any other number of terms you care to throw around that basically are describing the ways that we go about 
isolating, manipulating, and controlling one another. And it's not that everybody does this to everybody. That's not the case at all. But when it happens, it happens in particular ways. And when it happens abusively or destructively, then we talk about things like coercive control, where a person is being coerced. They're being, you know, strong-armed into or being made to do something that they don't really want to be doing or don't really want to be, um, you know, engaged in. And this is, you know, somehow you are bending uh, people's wills. And you can do that deceptively. You can do that covertly where people are not necessarily aware of what's going on. Or you can do that overtly and blatantly and right in their face. And everybody knows exactly what's going on. Still control. Um, control as a topic can get a really bad name. And I have to stress this right away that, you know, all control is not bad. Coercive control is a term we use to try to limit, you know, the kind of controls where we're going, yeah, this is this is the bad stuff. But all control, you know, as a word, the word, it, it has a lot of connotation. And, and there's a lot of people who have... Um, you know, get triggered by this word or feel that this word is is somehow a bad thing. It represents a bad thing. But if you don't control your car, if you don't control your body, if you don't control other people around you to one degree or another, you can't get through life, much less get through uh, a job or, you know, work or, or even play. Sports, I mean, all of these things require a good, uh, fine ability to control things. So there's nothing wrong with control. But there's all kinds of things wrong with forcing or enforcing control on other people when they don't want it. And uh, it's a violation of human rights. It's in many, many cases, it's a violation of people's civil rights. And it is illegal in some places. And so this is a field of study in psychology because... As you can imagine, uh, there's a lot of uh, controversy on this topic. What's okay? What's not okay? What's authoritarian? What's not? You know, what what is what's cool to do to people uh, in the name of public health, let's say, and safety, versus uh, what is stepping over the line. And a lot of people have a lot of opinions about this, a lot of ideas about it, all valid, actually, from their own experiences. And from their own points of view, but we have to learn to live together too. And so we have to figure this stuff out in such a way that it is most constructive to the most number of people, I guess you could say, in terms of that sort of utilitarian ethics, greatest good for greatest number kind of thing. And approach, you know, approach things like this from that point of view and realize that, you know, that control is not always convenient or fun for people to experience, but it is sometimes necessary. So anyway, I just kind of wanted to address that word as, the, as, a, as part of the topic because it's kind of a big trigger word for some people. But studying the psychology of coercive control is getting into the headspace and mindset and the techniques and methods of uh, predators, um, traffickers, cult leaders, uh, abusive spouses or partners, domestic partners, uh, gangs. I mean, this the, the domains that this field covers basically extend across pretty much every endeavor people get involved in. You learn pretty quickly on this program that um, that that coercive control is is a matter of of a relationship. It's a kind of relationship between people. And I don't just mean a, a romantic relationship. I'm not talking about one or two people. It can be a one to a thousand relationship in a cult where you have one cult leader and a thousand followers. It's still a relationship, you understand. And um, even if that relationship is only via 
like with Scientology and me and L. Ron Hubbard, I never met L. Ron Hubbard. I didn't have a personal, intimate relationship with L. Ron Hubbard, but I did have a relationship with L. Ron Hubbard via his written and spoken works. And I had an idyllic vision of this man. He was a very real person to me. And, um, and so I was a follower to this leader, even though this leader wasn't even alive after 1986. And yet here I was still following everything this man had to say as though it was, um, well, you know, the delivered truth from uh, mana from heaven. So, uh, so it doesn't even necessarily have to be that the cult leader is still alive to be exerting coercive control against people. However, let's be clear that if the cult leader is dead, you're going to have to have other living people enacting his will or her will, or in other words, somehow communicating to the followers, you know, what they need. And that's how David Miscavige in Scientology has become the new epitome of the cult leader in that uh, in that world. Okay. So, so that's where the coercive control comes from now. And you can see how David Miscavige has changed and morphed Scientology over the years to adapt his own ideas of what, of how people should be controlled, which is a little bit different from L. Ron Hubbard's. And that's how you see the different flavors of Scientology over the years. But it's still, whether it was L. Ron Hubbard or whether it was David Miscavige, it's still coercive control. Uh, and as I mentioned, we covered the fact that this, one of the first things we were learning about this, there was a, there, the, the class was broken down into three semesters. It was trimesters. So the first semester, uh, and it was, and doing the full-time program the way that I did, there were two classes per term. So in the first two terms. So the, excuse me. So the first term covered the itology of coercive control, which means basically the makeup, genesis, you know, the creation, the making of, the structure, the anatomy of coercive control, and um, social influences of coercive control, you know, the psychology, the basic fundamentals, what are we talking about? And then there was also another class, which was research methods in, in psychology. And that was, that, was, that, was, that was a more generalized class. It wasn't tailored for our program. It was tailored for or sort of generalized for the medical nurse students and the psychology students and the addiction students. There were different programs that were utilizing the research methods class for their programs. And that tended to be nobody's, it, it was sort of nobody's child and it ended up being a bit of an orphan. It was not a great class. Uh, and I mean, yes, I am being overly critical or overtly critical of it because uh, it was difficult and it, it was unnecessarily so. But the um, the itology class, on the other hand, the itology, of course, of control, that was that was awesome. That was great. Now we're going to go over some of uh, I've got here the listings of all the lectures and everything we went over. And I thought I'd walk through some of this just to kind of give you guys a flavor of what we studied and what I learned about. So. First, you had the, um, in the itology class, we covered the basics, of course, of controls I just went over, and we covered the fact that in the United Kingdom, there are actually laws on the books now uh, to, that are directed toward the, the, the domain of, of um, domestic violence, not cults or gangs or sex or, or troublesome groups or trafficking, but, but in the area of domestic violence, 
there are now law as there is now a law in the books that has been enacted has been prosecuted successfully uh, against coercive control and one of the things about coercive control in this law that is so interesting is that it is a pattern of repeating behavior I, I want to stress this because it's kind of an important point. Coercive control is not something that you demonstrate as a one-off. Anybody can have a bad day. Anybody can go off on somebody else or can be abusive to another person as part of in, in their relationship with others. And that's not necessarily, you know, a one-off is not necessarily a sign that you're dealing with a narcissist or a predator or an evil, horrible person who must be destroyed. All of us have bad days. All of us have bad moods. All of us can get triggered. All of us have our psychological uh, trigger points and weaknesses. And when those are, when we are stressed, when we are tired, when we are hungry, when any number of other factors are at play with us socially or in our environment, we can basically lose our shit. And when we do, we can create really bad effects. We can do really bad things. We can say bad things. We can do bad things. But we shouldn't necessarily all be judged on just a single incident. And when you're looking at coercive control, you are looking at a couple of things about this is nobody stumbles into or fumbles their way into or accidentally coercively controls somebody else. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. It, coercive control is a premeditated, knowing, purposeful activity. So it's and it's a repeating pattern of this similar conduct, isolation, manipulation and control. Those are the three main points. So when you're so this law in the UK successfully prosecuted a man, uh, a what sorry, a woman who um, had killed her husband. And it turns out that it was because he had been coercively controlling and abusing her for years. And this law actually um, uh, got her released, got her freed from that because it was uh, put up as a as a uh, part of the defense. I think there was something else about that particular case that made it also uh, she was released on another point that didn't directly get into this. So there was more to the case than just this coercive control law, but it was part of the picture and it is being used uh, in the UK to try to go after people who are engaged in these, you know, repeating patterns of long-term domestic violence abuse. Uh, it's, it's not cool to be beaten up on your spouse under any circumstances, both the female to the male and the male to the female or male to male, female to female. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of studies on this and fascinating research on it. And we dived into all of that and, and learned quite a bit about it. And in fact, Evan Stark is one of the, the sort of thought leaders in the area of, of coercive control and domestic violence. And he is the one who actually brought the, the, the topic of coercive control down to isolation, manipulation, and control. Those, those, that comes out of his, Evan Stark's work. <clears throat> Excuse me. And there are things in reading Evan Stark that I definitely disagreed with in terms of some of his more gender-specific claims about males versus females and domestic violence. I, I think he's a, a bit, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, misandrist, I don't know, whatever. I, I think he's got a thing about guys. But... Uh, you know, we find actually in the domestic violence world that the weight of the the studies and the research and the work tends to be female centric and tends to downplay or even outright ignore 
male incidents of uh, domestic violence against males. And that is a problem. That's something that needs to be resolved. Um, it totally makes sense. We're not going to get into in this show here why that is or or how, you know, whatever. It's not that everybody's evil and there's just a bunch of horrible people out there. It's just the 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 brunt of the attention on that topic has tended to go in one direction and we need models and we need work being done and this work is being done very actively by a lot of people so so no worries uh something is being done about this but we need we need more being done on that particular side of things cuz i don't particularly happen to believe that um after researching and studying this to the degree that i have that domestic violence and the causes of it are are gender specific i think that there are social forces and uh familial influences and and social influences that are equally you know, uh, influential on male and female. And I think that has, uh, that has a, a lot to do with, uh, the domestic violence problems that we see. And the modeling that's done on this is great stuff. It's not like it's all just flawed, but since this is something we're talking about, I thought I'd bring up that little criticism I had. Um, but overall there is more, much, much, much more positive work being done in that sphere than there is negative work. It's just a matter of fine tuning things so that everybody's getting the treatment they need. That's really at the end of the day, all we're really asking for is, Hey, you know, when, when guys get raped, when guys get assaulted, when guys have issues with domestic violence, they should be heard too. You know, it's really not a big ask, but for some people it is. <laughs> so anyway, so that's kind of part of some of what we covered there. But it was so interesting to read about and see how the laws could be enacted and how complicated it was, which really helped inform my like thinking about how to go, how to go after cults. Because it's not as easy as you might think. It's not. I mean, you go sit down and try to formulate... Uh, a written description of what would be a universally true thing about coercive control or about uh, destructive cults and how you can recognize them, how you can measure them, how you can prosecute them for wrongdoing. I mean, how do you go about doing this? It's, kind of, it's a little hard once you actually start breaking it down because you don't want to interfere with people's ability to or right to believe what they want. So you can't base it on belief or th you can't thought police people. So how do you do this and how do you regulate it? You know, I'd say these are, these are important questions and, and questions that, that we considered as part of our study on this. The other thing that was really interesting that we studied also, and I'm barely into the first couple lectures of the, of the class, I'll have to speed this up, but... Um, one of the other things that we looked at were power dynamics, and this was really interesting because this is closely related with critical theory, and which is which is uh, ties into uh, criticisms I've made about critical race theory and critical gender theory. Uh, and that that's not the, again the point of this show, but it was interesting to dive into this. And the reason I th I'm I'm saying it was so interesting is because while I've had my issues with critical theory as a philosophy, as a philosophical sort of uh, approach to knowledge and epistemology and, and power dynamics spe specifically, um, it was really interesting to see that there is a new model of mental health, I guess you could say, and it's called the power threat meaning framework. And it rejects the DSM-4, the, the, the um, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, from, uh, which is the uh, brainchild of, of psychology and psychiatry. 
And it rejects all that. It rejects the medical model of labeling and diagnosing mental conditions as though they are a disease or a met, you know, using that medical pathological model. And instead, they analyze relationship issues or personal issues or personal problems a person might have. And we're not talking about genetic or biological nervous you know, nerve damage kind of problems. We're talking about psychological issues here. But where you have um, power disparities, you can have some very, very interesting interpretations of reality. When a person is um, suffering from a lack of power in a relationship, when another person is dominating them or over controlling them or or uh, oppressing them through... through uh, you know, power differentials, then you can get a person starts manifesting threats like, oh, my God, this is threatening to me. And what meaning do they derive from those threats? And how can we address that? I'm grossly oversimplifying this concept. But this is this is basically power threat meaning framework. And this has been formally adopted by the British um, Psychological Society. That's it's not the in America. It's the APA. And in, in the UK, it's the BPS. Uh, British Psychological Society, I believe. And they have formally adopted this power threat meaning framework as a, a way of uh, dealing with or or working with uh, people who have mental issues and uh, or psychological issues. And so um, this is brand new stuff. And uh, we watched some lectures on this. We read about it, wrote about it, uh, did some research with it. And it really got me thinking and changing my mind about certain aspects of critical theory and about the, the, the power differentials and how that can throw things, you know, really throw some some monkeys into some wrenches, so to speak. And uh, and because it, it also made me think about, you know, how you could also draw up frameworks similar to a power threat meaning framework. You could also draw up similar frameworks uh, centered around the, the topics of responsibility or control as uh, as the basis for your framework rather than power. So, you know, just, just different ideas that occurred to me as we were going, but I just, um, it really kind of broadened the view of mental health as an entire topic. Like, what if we removed or rejected the pathological model and stopped labeling everybody as though that was so helpful? And of course, over medicating people as well because of these diagnoses, and instead, really dug in and analyze their life, their relationships, their social connections, the power of those connections, their work dynamics, their personal dynamics, family. How do these things all integrate? What pressures does this person have? What threats do they encounter in their life? And how what meaning have they derived from those threats? And 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 how do that how does that work on their relationships and on their own mental health? You know, this has a lot to do. I mean, your relationships and your and how you get along with other people has everything to do with your own personal mental health. So, it, you know, so this is well, this is quite interesting as an approach. So we covered some of that, and that has obvious tie-ins with destructive cults or with coercive control because of the power differentials that are inherent in the coercive control relationship. So, so that was interesting, very, very interesting stuff. Um, we studied an awful lot in that first class about the structure and nature of destructive cults 
And fortunately, I had come to the program with a lot of that knowledge already under my belt, thankfully so, because I didn't have to uh, learn all of that on top of all the other crap I was trying to learn from the research methods class, statistics especially. That was hard because I had not had any prior experience with statistics. Although I did learn over time that I, I sort of disabused myself of the wrong notion that because I hadn't done the four-year bachelor's program before I did this master's program, I thought I was coming in uh, with a little bit of a disadvantage because I hadn't done that prior study. But the people who had done, who did come into this program, who had already had bachelors, had the same problems I did. So I learned quickly that wasn't the issue. Uh, so that was kind of fun. Um, okay, we also covered in terms of uh, the itology, of course, of control, we got into domestic violence against children and elder abuse. These are two specific categories of domestic violence that um, uh, are... So disturbing. Ooh, we got in some pretty real. This this class uh, was disturbing at some points, and I want to bring this up and, and mention this because I had to deal with, or or really confront and face some some real inner inner and external demons in learning about some of this. And I'm specifically talking about um, elder abuse, child abuse, and racism, um, and, and modern slavery and trafficking, uh, because this is all part of the coercive control picture. It's not just about L. Ron Hubbard and cults or, or David Koresh and Waco. It's about coercive control around the world and, and, and how it manifests in all these different areas. And um, so, you know, I, I, this was the class where I learned about um, the Turner Diaries. The Turner Diaries were a, a serialized set of, of uh, stories written by probably one of the most racist people I've ever heard of. I, I won't even get into any of that except to say it was a real wake-up call for me to uh, be confronted with written work of such putrid hatred, just unthinking, unreasonable, completely pure evil. Uh, and that was a real pill for me to swallow because I'd been, I, you know, as part of, again, just to, you know, these things are going to change you. You learn about things this important, this deep, this, this you know, and, and it changes you. Because um, you realize that, you know, you can project your version of reality off on other people. We all do. And you do that all the time. You do that all day. Because right? that's how you empathize with people is you got to kind of imagine how they see things. But you can't really get how they see things. You can only imagine how, how you think they see things. So I had tended to be pretty optimistic and kind of Pollyannish even in some ways when it came to dealing with just how evil, uh, just how bad, how unreasoned um, that evil can be. And, and this class really was a bit of an ice water dip in, in going farther down that rabbit hole than I had gone before, confronting... Um, not just you know things like the Turner Diaries or the or the the racial hatred that 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 created the Civil War and created you know all the problems in the in America since then, but uh, also um, just 
well, the trafficking, right, and getting into the and getting into the slavery issue and how that works these days, and how and and dealing and then looking and then and then looking at that information and thinking about my own experiences and realizing. I was a victim of trafficking, of labor trafficking. Not there's 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 sex trafficking and labor trafficking, and 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 mixing those two things. I I was not involved in sex trafficking, but as a person who was transported, um, uh, both in and out of across state lines, and uh, the reasons for my you know for the work and all of that while I was on the RPF and in the Sea Org, that was there, there was labor trafficking going on there, and that's that's not good. So, um, so kind of just kind of digging into the, the depths of just how down the, the rabbit hole, that kind of stuff can go, I guess, you know, it's like what I was saying there is uh, it changes you. And it really made me have to confront the fact that there are forces at play in the world, I guess you could say, in other people's minds and other people's worlds that um, are not anything I'll ever be able to, their, their head spaces I'll never be able to get in. And, uh, and I've always prided myself on trying to be able to really get in to other people's, you know, worldviews or, or head spaces and, and try to understand things from their, their perspective. But you realize there's some perspectives you just, you just can't and, and really don't want to try to understand too deeply because it's just evil. And uh, and that is used way too much, I know, to just brush people off, you know, to, 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 to I disagree with it, so it's evil. I, th this is a little more than that, and I hope I'm getting that across. I'm not, I'm not talking about civil discourse is possible, but, you know, we're just not going to because I can't stand it. It's, no, there is no civil discourse possible with these people, with, with this depth and magnitude of, 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 uh, hatred. So that was a little bit of an eye opener, as you can see, I that was definitely an eye opener for me. And I and I had some moments there that were truly life changing that were really very, very introspective moments that 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 I think were, were very necessary for me to have. Um, we also were given a lecture by a person who had been involved in and this blew me away. This guy had been involved in a in a uh, revolutionary based cult, political ideological cult in Iran. And this group had been fighting against the Shah or not the Shah, sorry, the uh, Ayatollah Khomeini and his whole religious authoritarian totalist regime that they had established in Iran, which is still going as far as I know, there was a counter there was a revolutionary group that formed in Iran to fight that, which itself became a destructive cult. Full on, full commitment, us versus them, you have to give up your life, you can't be married, no kid. I mean, full personal control of every member of this revolutionary group that was fighting itself a totalist authoritarian government. So... That was interesting because uh, like Falun Gong in China, it kind of brought to light that just because a group is fighting a cult doesn't mean it's a good group. <laughs> you know, you can have cults fight cults. That blew me away.
that was a little interesting. It's not common. It doesn't. It's not like you see it everywhere, but it sure is interesting because you. If, 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 we have a tendency in our psychology to want good versus bad, black versus white. We want to know who the good guys are. We want to know who the bad guys are. And sometimes in a struggle, they're both bad. <laughs> And that was interesting to really get my head around on that one. Uh, okay, we also, of course, covered radicalization and terrorism because that is the ultimate rabbit hole of um, of cultic thinking is is getting radicalized both online and in person. And um, and we studied some cases of that and how that works and how the manipulation can occur in a social media uh, domain. And believe me, it can. And it does. And we've done many shows about QAnon and online cults and, and the modeling that's being done and worked on to try to understand how that works because it is a thing. And it's not, again, a thing where, you know, every single group you disagree with is a cult just because you disagree with them. I'm talking here about the techniques and methods of thought reform. I'm not talking about the belief set. Um, so, you know, when we look at how online radicalization occurs, we're looking at, well, how do they get people into that situation? What does the person have to bring with them in the first place to be radicalized? Is there a, is there a priming? Is there some predilection or, or personality traits a person has? We don't really know yet. There is, there is conjecture on this, but it's still being studied. And it is so, so interesting to study. So we got into uh, talking about some of that. And then finally, we were um, we got a great lecture uh, from uh, Dr. Alexander Stein, uh, who I've had on my podcast. That's why I'm, I'm giving her a little name shout out here. And she talked about uh, attachment in coercive control and how you have... Um, attachment bonds and traumatic, what's called trauma bonding, where you're alternately rewarding and penalizing somebody in um, in various extreme ways in order to kind of glue them or or stick them to you. That's, that's trauma bonding and, and predators are, are well familiarized with that. But it does happen in other places and other contexts too. So uh, anyway, her work on that is pretty, pretty groundbreaking stuff. And she uh, relates a lot of that also to uh, PTSD and, and complex PTSD. And there's, there's very, very interesting um, stuff there that we got into in, in the, the, the nature of why does the relationship, that coercive control relationship happen? What sticks people to it? Why don't people just walk away? I mean, we, we now know the answer to that question, but you got to understand some of the psychology of relationships and attachment in order to, to really, you know, kind of kind of grok that, you know. So anyway, we got into a lot of that. Um, as far as the, I think I've complained enough about the research methods class. I'm not going to harp on that too much more. Um, but then we did the next class that we'll cover real fast here. And then, um, and then, yeah, is the, um, the anatomy of coercive control in comparative contexts. And this was, um, this was the one of the, in the second term, after we finished the first, we did the second term. Wait, there were two classes. This was the first one is comparative context. And the other one was therapy and recovery from destructive cults. So in the comparative context class first, I had a lot of fun with this one because we studied lots of different situations or contexts or conditions in which coercive control is manifested. For example, love and sex addiction. 
We talked about coercive control there. Um, we looked at um, how, in terms of codependency, for example, right? If you're looking at sex addicts or you're looking at, uh, at, at people who, are, who profess to be sex addicts, you get into some fascinating um, uh, relationship dynamics. Let's just put it that way. We also looked at social media and social media grooming, not just radicalization from terrorist cells, but also domestic um, uh, predators, right? People who groom children online. Uh, that's another form of coercive control, right? And so we had to dive into the anatomy of that. And how does that kind of stuff work? And man, the statistics on social media. When, if, when you guys saw me leave Facebook or heard me talk about that, this is one of the reasons why. Is it's not it's not that so it's not that if we got rid of social media we'd get rid of grooming or we get rid of predators. It's not it, we wouldn't. But the uh, way that these platforms enable predators to do predation, right, to do what they do, is disturbing. It truly is. And, and if you're not aware of it, you don't know what's up with that, you don't know how the algorithms work, you don't know how these things can be manipulated so that children become victimized, then it's, and if you have kids, it's something worth looking into. Um, because these platforms are rife with predation, and it's something that you just gotta have to know is out there. It's not a blame, you know. It's not a fear and uncertainty and doubt and freak everybody out. It's just you gotta know about this stuff, and we learned all about it in the class. So that was very, very interesting. Uh, another context in which you will find coercive control, which we have discussed uh, recently on my live show, was police interrogations. Oh, my goodness, are you going to find all kinds of coercively controlling behavior, flat out abusive stuff, sleep deprivation, food deprivation, and for, uh, false imprisonment in the interrogation cell. I mean, they don't necessarily have a right to hold you, but people who don't know that don't ask or enact their rights. You know, if you're talking to cops without a lawyer present, you are an idiot, period. You know, that kind of thing. You, you, the, the, the ability of, of law enforcement to engage in coercive control is disturbing. The power they have is disturbing when it is misused. When it's used correctly, great, you know, but when it's misused, and it is, it can be rough. And uh, so anyway, we got into a lot of that. And again, this highlighted a point where the UK was kind of leading the, the charge here because they've adopted a whole different model of police interrogation now because social scientists who have been, you know, studying police interrogations for decades have been crying, we got to change this, man. This ain't right. You're getting false convictions. You are co you are coercing people into confessions who are not guilty of their of the crime that they that they are confessing to. And if you if you think, you know, hearing that, well, why would somebody confess to a crime they didn't commit? That's silly. Yeah, well, let's dive into the details of how that happens, and you'll find out it's not silly at all. There is not one person out there watching this who could not be pushed into a state of mind where you would confess to something you didn't do just to get out of the situation you're stuck in. Believe me, your life can be made so hellacious so fast by people who have power and they can wield that power over you 
it's scary. And uh, so you need to know your rights. You need to know uh, what you know, these these uh, institutions can and can't do to you. And uh, that was a real eye opener, as you can see. I, I really, you know, another another ice water dip for me into into the reality of just how precarious our circumstances can be sometimes, and and how the rights that we have really are our only shield against some forms of coercive control. So knowing your rights and practicing your rights is important. This is why I'm always going on and on about the value and importance of human rights. So. Uh, okay, then we also, of course, got into, um, oh, God, uh, probably the single most disturbing lecture that we had. And to, on top of everything I've already told you guys about with the trafficking and slavery and racism and all that crap, female genital mutilation. That was a tough lecture. Man. Uh, you know, religiously motivated, culturally motivated. Uh, if you think it's all religion, it's not. There's a lot of culture going on there. Uh, this is mostly a problem in, in certain African nations. Um, but we see this being exported through um, the uh, immigration of uh, Muslims and other, you know, culture, cultures going into Western cultures and sort of you know, in the, in the middle of the acclimation process, we see real issues, real serious problems with honor killings and with female genital mutilation, because these are cultural practices that are being brought into Western societies that do not in any way, shape, or form agree that these are okay practices, but in Eastern cultures, they are. And so um, so you have this practice, these, these coercive control practices and physically mutilating practices. And it's just, it's really, it's really gross. It's really pretty gross stuff. Um, again, gross uh, and glaring violations of people's civil and human rights. And in, in countries that don't recognize those human rights, we have cultural clashes and issues. And, and this is really, really, really a big problem because people are being harmed and hurt, even when the culture demands it and says it's okay. Is it? Now, how do you think about that? How do you look at that? Right? These are tough questions if you really get into the details on it. And we did. So uh, that was that was probably the, the, the toughest part. Um, as I mentioned, we covered um, gangs, we covered violent extremism and um, and grooming and sexual exploitation uh, across a number of different contexts, both religious um, and non-religious. There's there's lots and lots of examples through space and time of of, uh, of a lot of that. Now, in terms of the approaches to recovery, this was sort of the antidote to all the awful of the coercive of the comparative context class. We also then got a really great survey of lots and lots of different therapy models and modes of, of treatment and how you might go about addressing the recovery from a coercively controlling abusive situation, both domestically, cult-wise, gang-wise, trafficking, etc. So um, this is where I really got to really learn a lot more detail about um, the different kinds of therapy. There's art therapy. There's, um, there is um, different existential therapies. There are emotion-based therapies. There is CBT, right? Cognitive behavioral therapy, cognitive emotional therapy. There is trauma-focused behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy. There's a lot of different things going on 
different ways of approaching how to help people recover from or get over the trauma of their experiences. And, um, and it was so interesting and so difficult, as I think I'd done podcasts about mid-year when we were in the middle of this stuff. I think I did some podcasts talking about breaking out of that Scientology mindset that there is only one right way to do a thing. And, and if it's not that way, it's, it's wrong, you know, and you learn in this that, that approaches to recovery and working with people who've come out of situations is, is very context specific. It's very individual to the person you're talking to and dealing with them. And so different approaches are almost mandated right now because you're, gonna, you're not sure what's going to work with this person based on their skill set, knowledge set, belief set, you know, and experiences. And, uh, and all of these things are very, very important factors when you're going to try to heal somebody uh, of their trauma. So, um, so learning lots of different approaches, learning about um, programs that exist and people who are dedicatedly full-time working with cult survivors or domestic abuse survivors, what they do, how they do it, how they approach it, what's a done, how do you know, when, when are you done with recovery? When are you done with your healing? When do you know the trauma is all gone? Is the trauma ever all gone? Important questions. Again, stuff we covered. Um, also, and this was the, probably the hardest pill for me to swallow while we were going along on this whole thing, was the role of self-care in treating people who are recovering from destructive cults because not everybody in this program is an ex-cult member themselves. And there were many people who were involved in counseling or therapy of some form who were doing this program along with me. I, I was not doing this program in order to learn how to do counseling or therapy, but learning all about some of these methods and modes and, and dealing with that was certainly helpful to me in my work. And learning about how you got to give yourself as the therapist, as the counselor, you got to give yourself breaks. You got to give yourself time away. And it, and it became very real to me during this year how the old habits that I'd had in Scientology were, were clearly no longer working for me. And yet I was still habituated to, get, to take on too much. To, to, to just, you know, pile it on, pile it on, pile it on. I can take it. I can deal with it. I don't care. It doesn't matter. But it did. And it does. And there is only so much bad news you can take. There is only so much trauma you can read about before you need to go out and look at some daisies, you know, there before you got to go out and get into damn ice cream and watch a cartoon. You know, you've got to give yourself that space. And I was really, really, really bad at that. And uh, one thing that I really got out of this class in a, in a very significant way was the importance of giving myself a break and realizing that burning myself out, uh, either getting through this program or doing the work that I do, wasn't going to help me or anybody else. It wasn't, it wasn't doing anybody of any favors to martyr myself for some, you know, whatever. That's a, that's a very silly way to approach approach things. And I, and I kind of had to twig on that myself. Uh, also, as part of this, we learned about deprogramming and what that all was about and what was, what was bad, what was right, what was wrong about all of that. Uh, the history of cult and cult interventions and, 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 uh, 
uh, how all that stuff worked. Basically, we covered that in detail, both so we would learn what not to do when dealing with people, but also how to approach them and, and what, what attitude, how should you do interviews with people? How should you talk to them in the interviews? Um, how do you do non-judgmental, non-evaluative kind of work with people when they are saying things to you that you absolutely have some judgments about and want to say something about? You know, you got to kind of control yourself, all of that. So anyway, we covered all of that in some pretty interesting detail. So having kind of walked through the program, I am not really at this point totally aware of how different I might be from how I was a year and a half ago because the changes were gradual and they were over a long period of time. And so sometimes you don't really totally fully appreciate what you've been through and what you've done. But I do, I can say a few things that I am sure of that I now feel very, very confident about or very, very, you know, I, I, sure of, yeah, confident, um, that, I that I don't know that I was so sure about before. And, and, and here are those things. One, I've gotten over the imposter syndrome <laughs> of this program. It was really deep most of the year. I was absolutely positive getting through this thing that, uh, that, that I was a total fake. I had no idea what I was doing, no idea what I was talking about. Because you realize, you know, in covering the depth of all this stuff, how much knowledge there is to know, how many, how, how wide, how abrasive, how deep this topic goes. And then you realize, oh, right, you know, I'm going to spend probably the good part of the rest of my life, my professional life, continuing to learn and continuing to push and, and grow this field. And so you kind of realize how much more work there is and how much we don't know right now. It's all this stuff we know, but look at all the stuff we don't yet know and how do we figure it out? And that's really fun. That's really cool. And it was, um, but it's humbling. It's very, very humbling. And, um, and so, so the imposter syndrome of kind of feeling like I was faking it the whole time definitely passed when you get it under your belt that you start integrating all this information and do what you do in the third term of this program, which was doing the master's thesis. And that was, um, it was either going to be a systemic review, which is a full search and review of all the literature, all the, uh, you know, in academia on a particular topic or subject and, and really going over it in detail and researching based on that. Or you get to do original research of your own, which is what I did. And, um, and you figure out what kind of research you're going to do. You can do survey. You can do anything you want, really. And, um, and in my case, I did an, an analysis of um, L. Ron Hubbard's spoken words. And I showed in my thesis how he created a framework of coercive control in the environment of Scientology, specifically with Security checking is what I covered, but uh, but the work that I did covers auditing in general in many many ways, and and a lot more work could be done, and and I'm sure will be done along that line. And it was in putting all of that together that the imposter syndrome kind of goes away because you start realizing that you do know a lot and you have covered a lot and you do have good things to say. And when you do research like I did and you come up with results that are, you know, you go, oh, my God, this isn't just my opinion. I can prove this. This is something I can show anybody. It's like a legal argument here. Bop, 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 bop. And here's the results. And I can and, and you look at it. 
and go ahead and tell me, you know, uh, that I, you know, this this is provable. This is defensible, in other words, right? And that's that was a, that was a real key moment for me because I was I'd been under the impression after years and years of Scientology indoctrination and all the other stuff that psychology was just this wishy-washy field and social sciences were just this wishy-washy field and nobody really had any facts and, you know, there's no real numbers here and and it's all just a bunch of opinions versus opinions. And, and believe me, there's a ton of opinions and a lot of subjectivity in psychology kind of by its nature. You know, what are we dealing with? We're dealing with subjective stuff. But... You can quantify it, you can research it, and you can come up with defensible conclusions that are based on your research that says something important about psychology, and in my case, says something about coercive control. And putting all of that together at the end here really kind of brought all of this home and um, and showed, you know, proved to me for myself that I do know what I'm talking about with this and that this is a field of expertise and knowledge and that I know things now that, you know, that other people don't know. And then I want to share this knowledge and I want to share my ability to do research in this field so that I can make it easier for everybody in the, in the X cult world. That's, that's my goal and my target with this whole thing. And I hope that I am able to move the ball forward as time rolls out here so that I'm not only getting this video work done for you guys on my channel with my podcast or other work, but that I'm actually doing other things in the big wide world other than video work to push the, you know, move the ball down the road on how we understand and deal with coercive control in destructive cults. That's definitely my my mainline focus. Um, but that all being said, now that I've actually covered a much broader base of knowledge, it's my intention to expand my channel to cover these other areas as well and to bring in people to talk to who are domestic violence survivors or people who work in those areas and, and can talk intelligently about how treatment works, how uh, the, what, what are the red flags or markers of a domestic abuser, right? That kind of thing. I want to talk, I want to bring in more content in that area. And I also want to bring in more content in the area of trafficking. Uh, human trafficking, both sex and labor trafficking and, and, and modern slavery and stuff like that, too, because those are other domains I now know a whole lot about that I haven't done a whole lot of work on on my channel yet. So you might see as um, as things roll out here and I start considering how I'm going to maybe rebrand or retitle myself or sort of think, you know, I'm sort of thinking about all that right now. Um so that, you know, this channel is addressing all aspects of coercive control, not just destructive cults, although clearly destructive cults are a field that I could spend easily just the rest of my life on focusing just on that. But I thought it might be um, a more advantageous use of my platform for everybody concerned if I broadened out to those other topics as well. So you guys let me know what you think about that in the comments to this podcast. <clears throat> okay, so all of that being kind of said, I think that's the show I wanted to do this week is kind of give you guys that whole breakdown and let you know what I, what have I been up to for the last year and a half? Where's my head been? What have been what have I been really working on? This all this stuff, 
And uh, and now that it's over, I'm waiting for my grades uh, to my final grades to come in on my paper, and on my whole overall program, so that I get the. I, I'm I'm counting on the fact that I'm going to pass. I, I I am assuming that it is a done deal as far as that goes. If I'm wrong and I have to go back and do stuff or whatever. I'll let you guys know, but as far as I can tell, this should be a done deal at this point. And I'm really just kind of waiting on the grades now. And then I get to put those letters after my name and do, you know, isn't that exciting? So anyway, um, there you go, guys. I'll probably stop identifying as the critical thinker at large after I do that. <laughs> I'm thinking about dropping that. You guys let me know what you think about that, too. All right. So um, that all being said, thanks very much for coming around and listening to me gab on here for an hour about all this. I hope it was interesting. I hope I said some stuff that was entertaining. And I hope that um, you will consider supporting the channel uh, because I intend to grow this channel. I intend to continue talking about this topic at even, you know, at even more uh, uh, breakneck speed and pace and all of that. And you will be happy to know that I have already begun my literature review on the subject of emotions, because that is the next big Scientology video coming is the Scientology tone scale video. I've, I've dusted off the, the work I did on it before. I have gone into the literature, which I still have access to, and I have been pulling actual research and papers from real scientists on the subject of emotion from, um, so Sociology, psychology, and neuroscience, all of them have different takes on the subject of emotion, and it should be pretty interesting stuff. So that is now happening. I am wasting no time getting going on these, on fulfilling these old promises I have to you guys. So my, you know, it's going to take me what it's going to take me to get it done, but I am on it now. So uh, that all being said, I will talk to you guys next week. Bye-bye.